They understood that to be a Calvinist in your closet is to really not be a Calvinist at all. That to be a well-rounded Christian means you understand the value of a biblical church. That it is theocentric, that it is God-centered, and it is about the worship and the glory of God, not the entertainment of man. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church, located in St. John's County, Florida, just south of Jacksonville and a short distance from St. Augustine. The sermons on this podcast are preached weekly at Christ Reformed, and we'd love for you to join us for worship. Let me tell you a little bit about our church. Three words can help describe our church in simple terms. First, we are confessional. We endorse and teach from both the Westminster Standards along with the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. Second, we are expositional. Our church's ministry focuses on the expository preaching of God's Word. Currently, I'm preaching through the Gospel of Mark. Third, we are intentional. This church was established in early 2016 with the intention of focusing on the ordinary means of grace. It is the study of God's Word, prayer, and the sacraments that remain our focus as a church. So, if you are interested in a confessional Reformed Church plant intentional to focus on the simplicity of ministry, you may want to consider visiting us. Our meeting address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. We are located less than 3 miles from Interstate 95 and less than 2 miles from Extension 9B. We are just south of Julington Creek. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, as well as articles and a podcast I host focusing on church history and theology, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com. Now, let's take our Bibles and open them to the Gospel of Mark for our sermon this week. Amen. You may be seated. Let's take our Bibles once again this morning and turn to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 3. Mark chapter 3, we are looking here at the twelve apostles, and we are really in a biographical way studying their lives and seeking to glean some degree of practical application from their example. One of the great values of this sort of mini-series is to see that all of the apostles had feet of clay. Yes, they were very contagious. Yes, they, they were very courageous. They were bold in preaching the gospel in the face of hostility. They were willing, as we have looked at the end of their lives, willing to sacrifice their lives for Christ at great cost. They were, no doubt, called to be the foundation of the New Testament church along with the Old Testament prophets. And yet, in the same way, Scripture is honest, not only about their strengths and about their successes, but also about their failures and about their weaknesses. The great Puritan William Gurnall once said, Look not how the Christian begins, but how he ends. Being a disciple of Christ involves a very long and dangerous journey that requires extreme perseverance. Being a disciple of Christ involves not only what we say, but how we live. Not just our talk, but also our walk. Not just our beliefs, but also our behavior. It comes with the territory that we recognize our strengths and use the gifts that God has blessed us with, and yet at the same time, be humble enough to admit our weaknesses. Along the way, always giving glory to God when we are used by Him in kingdom service and even surprised to some degree that God would use such people as us. These men, these twelve apostles, did have flaws. And in one sense, we are focusing more on their flaws than we are their strengths. 
But we are focusing on their flaws, but for a moment, because when we pan out, we see the bigger picture. We do find that in God's providence, and here is the encouragement, he overcomes their massive flaws and uses them mightily in the service of his kingdom. We see that they, in fact, ended well, and that should be an encouragement to all of us. Now, if you're looking for a verse that justifies a study like this, uh, you'll find it in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1, where Paul says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. What Paul is saying in that verse is that there is a precedent for, on the one hand, obviously looking uh, to Christ in order to be like Christ and looking to the strength of Christ to become like Christ, But there is a real sense in which we are not only permitted, but commanded to look at the examples of others, other saints, and in particular, Paul says, other apostles. Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. There is value in learning from the lives of other saints, and that's what we're trying to do in studying the apostles. This pursuit of pursuing Christ's likeness, um, is one that should be all-encompassing. One ancient clergyman said this, It is of no use, my son, he said this to his protege, it is, no use, my, uh, it is of no use, my son, to walk anywhere to preach unless we preach everywhere we walk. And so as we look at the apostles, we are to look at all of their lives We are to look at all of them, and we are to glean from both the good and the bad, the strengths and the weaknesses. We are to glean and learn from their lives. We are to look at their lives as a mirror into our own souls. There is to be a lot of reproving and rebuking and correcting that the Spirit of God can do in such a time as this. We're seeking to be well-rounded Christians. I can think of no group of Christians perhaps in the history of the church that was more well-rounded that flowed from the legacy of the apostles than the Puritans. The Puritans. Joel Beakey, who was a modern-day expert on the Puritans, describes the Puritans with four attributes that I think helps us see that a Christian that truly lives in a way that honors God is well-rounded. Beakey begins by saying that in short, doctrinally speaking, Puritanism was a kind of vigorous Calvinism. And then he uses four words to describe the Puritans. He says, number one, that the Puritans were experiential. Experientially, they were warm and contagious. In other words, they were not cold, hyper-Calvinists, which is sometimes what Reformed people are accused of, and to be honest with you, rightly so. Because sometimes Reformed people can be cold and heartless. And what Beakey says is that the Puritans were anything but that. They were experiential Christians. They were warm and contagious. They were tender and loving and gentle. They loved one another. They loved other sinners. They loved the world. They looked like Christ experientially. Secondly, Evangelistically, Beakey says, they were aggressive yet tender. That means that they were adamant about the truth of the gospel. They were not ashamed about the truth of the gospel. They proclaimed the truth of the gospel, but they did it with tenderness and love toward the lost world. That is what it means to be well-rounded. Experientially, they were warm and contagious. Evangelistically, they were aggressive and tender. Third, Beakey says, ecclesiastically, they were theocentric and worshipful. In other words, they didn't just say they were Calvinists. They didn't just say that they were Reformed, but they actually went to a church that was Reformed. They understood that to be a Calvinist in your closet is to really not be a Calvinist at all. That to be a well-rounded Christian means you understand the value of a biblical church. That it is theocentric, that it is God-centered, and it is about the worship and the glory of God, not the entertainment of man. 
Beeky says, experientially the Puritans were warm and contagious, evangelistically aggressive and tender, ecclesiastically theocentric and worshipful, and then fourth, politically, they aimed to be scriptural and balanced. The Puritans were not afraid to say things that were politically incorrect. The Puritans were not afraid to call out the civil magistrates. The Puritans did not separate themselves from society to such an degree that they were trying to escape this world. They interacted in the political realm. They interacted with unbelievers. They were part of their community. Evangelistic, experiential, robustly solid in their ecclesiology. They were vigorous Calvinists. I give that little portrait to you because I think that Modern day speaking, the Puritans were the most well-rounded group of Christians in the history of the Christian church. And they learned to be that way because they modeled their lives after Christ. And I think they obeyed well 1 Corinthians 11.1. They were imitators of Christ. They were imitators of the apostles. My prayer is that we see both our weaknesses in our walk with Christ and then turn to His grace for help as we look at the examples of others. My admonition would be very similar to Paul's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. In fact, you can turn over there to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 just for a moment because I really want to press home the justification for this mini-series. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, picking up in verse 1. Paul says this, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. Paul says, You received... The Word of God from us, you received what it means and how you ought to walk and to please God, and just as you are already doing that, I'm asking that you do so, the end of verse 1, more and more. In other words, there can never be a ceiling to our growth in holiness. None of us this morning have arrived, spiritually speaking. We must continue to climb the mountain of holiness and pursue the very likeness of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we're looking at the apostles. Now, so far, we've looked at four of them. We have looked at Peter. We call him the apostle of second chances. We've looked at Andrew, the the brother of Peter. We've called him the apostle of contentment. We've looked at James and John. They were brothers. They were the sons of thunder. This morning, I want to look at two more. I want to look at Philip and Bartholomew. Now, Philip and Bartholomew were not brothers like Peter and Andrew were and James and John were, but I do believe they were close associates. We'll begin by speaking about Philip. Philip was from Bethsaida, so he was from the same place that Peter and Andrew was from. His name simply means lover of horses, and you aren't to confuse him with the Philip found in the book of Acts, who was a deacon in the early church. Philip was an apostle. This Philip was an apostle. And I've already told you that there are four lists of the apostles in the New Testament. In every one of those lists, it appears that there are three groups of four. Peter is always listed first in that first subgroup, indicating that he was sort of the leader of that first group. But Philip is the first listed in the second subgroup, I think indicating that he was a leader of sorts for the second group of apostles. Furthermore, he is always listed next to Bartholomew. We see that here in Mark, our very passage, Mark chapter 3 and verse 18. Philip and Bartholomew are listed together. Now, other than the listing of his name with the other apostles, none of the other gospel writers except for John says anything significant about Philip. The synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, say nothing about him. They just list his name. John is the only one who says anything significant. 
And on top of that, most scholars believe that both Philip and Bartholomew, along with Thomas, were all fishermen from Galilee. So it is likely that they knew Peter and Andrew. It is likely they knew knew James and John before Jesus ever called these men to follow him. Now, the other apostle that I want to consider today is Bartholomew. He is referred to as Nathaniel, and we're going to look in a moment at the Gospel of John and an account that occurs. And in John's Gospel, he does not refer to Bartholomew as Bartholomew. He simply refers to him as Nathaniel. But the name Bartholomew is an Aramaic name that means son of Tolmai, son of Tolmai. He was from Cana, so he was from Galilee, but he was from the city of Cana. That was the place that Jesus performed his first miracle where he turned the water into wine. Like Philip, Bartholomew, or Nathaniel, is also only mentioned with the other apostles in the lists, other than when the Apostle John mentions him, and we'll look at that in more detail in a moment. But I want to call both of these men, Philip and Bartholomew, or Philip and Nathaniel, the Apostles of Patience. The Apostles of Patience. And as we look at their lives, I just want to draw out two principles about patience that help us be more Christ-like. I will tell you this morning that if you do a study of the word patience, you will find that it is one of the most common virtues of a true Christian. In fact, it is listed as one of the fruits of the Spirit. It is a staple virtue of the Christian. And if you are here this morning and you struggle with patience, let me just tell you something. You are here this morning because we all struggle with patience. And this morning I want to give to you two principles that will help us become more like Christ regarding this matter of patience. The first one is this. We need to learn, if we want to be like Christ, we need to learn to be patient with others in their doubts. Be patient with others in their doubts. Turn with me to John chapter 1. We're going to leave Mark because Mark doesn't really tell us anything about these men, so we need to go to the gospel of Mark. And I want to pick up here in verse 43. This is the day after Jesus called Peter and Andrew, James and John from their fishing business. We'll pick up in verse 43 of John chapter 1. We read the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael, that is Bartholomew, and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Here Jesus the Bible says, finds Philip. Now, it is likely that Philip was not a disciple of John the Baptist, strictly speaking, like the other men were, but apparently he is listening to the preaching of John the Baptist. He is somewhere around this period of time in which Jesus calls the other apostles. And we're going to see, as we read in verse 45, we'll see in more detail later, that both he and Bartholomew, or Matthew, as John calls him here, were diligent searchers of the Old Testament Scriptures. They were looking for the appearance of the Messiah. So while they may not have been, strictly speaking, disciples of John the Baptist, they were faithful Old Testament saints looking for the Messiah and likely listening to the preaching of John the Baptist. And therefore, it is no surprise that when we read that Jesus says to Philip, follow me, that Philip did so immediately. And when we note in verses 44 and 45, we see that Philip found Nathanael 
and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. The very first thing that Philip does is he finds his close friend Bartholomew, or Nathaniel as he is called here. And Nathaniel, or Bartholomew, responds with an incredulous spirit, doesn't he? There's some doubt in his voice. He says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? No doubt. This is a display of doubt, is it not? And we're going to come back to this statement later, but for now I want you to note Philip's response. Philip's response, at the end of verse 46, Philip said to him, come and see. Come and see. I love that. Because last week we somewhat picked on Philip and his lack of faith. Remember in the episode of the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus had went to him, not really seeking a solution, but really to test him. We saw that from John 6, 6, and going to Philip to say, where are we going to get food to feed all of these people. And we saw there that that Philip had really a lack of faith. He didn't trust in the miraculous power of Christ. He was counting the numbers. He was analyzing the graphs. He was analyzing things in such a a depth and earthly way that he was short-sighted in his faith. But not here. Uh, Here he has faith in Christ. Here he has a love and a patience for his friend Bartholomew who is doubting. Can anything good come from Nazareth? His faith is seen here. He knows, this seems to be what is indicated from the text, he knows that if he can just get Nathanael to come and meet Jesus, that he will be convinced. Come and see. There's no indication that he is frustrated here. There's no indication that he is impatient. He doesn't berate his friend. He doesn't doesn't, um, heap coals upon his head. He says, come on, I'll show you. Let's meet him. And when you meet him, you will be convinced. His faith is in Christ and his patience is on full display. He is being, I think, like the Puritans, if I can borrow Joe Beakey's attribute of evangelism, where he is being aggressive and yet tender at the same time. He's being patient with Bartholomew or Nathaniel in his doubts. And it's difficult for me at this point not to overlook a very important detail. I don't know if you noticed it. But from John's perspective, as he writes, he recognizes God's sovereignty in finding Philip. Note verse 43 again. John says, And Jesus, he found Philip. But then note how from Philip's perspective, as John records it in verse 45, that Philip was the one that found Christ. When he went to Nathanael, he says, we have found him. Now, let me just clear things up here this morning. It's not as if the apostle John was a Calvinist and Philip was an Arminian. Not at all. Philip and Bartholomew were both clear students. As this text says here of Moses and the law and all of the prophets, they would have been familiar with a very famous Old Testament verse. Deuteronomy 7 and verses 7 and 8. God says to Israel, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all the peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers. They would have believed strongly in the sovereignty of God and in the election of God. And as a matter of fact, Philip was anything but Arminian because I would make the argument that his knowledge and faith in God's sovereignty and finding him was the very thing that motivated him to go find someone else to bring them to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is always true. Evangelism is never trumped by the sovereignty of God. If you truly believe that God is sovereign, 
If you truly believe that God has chosen His people before the foundation of the world, you will be one of the most evangelistic persons in the world. You will not stop at sharing Christ with others. You will not quit proclaiming the gospel. You will not give up on your neighbor or your co-worker or your family member that does not know Christ. You will pray for them. You will plead with them to come meet Jesus Christ because you know that God has marked out His people from before the foundation of the world. There is a people that God will save. And I think Philip was so overcome by the sovereignty of God and finding Him that he couldn't resist but to go to the one who was closest to him and tell him to come meet Christ. In fact, there is a verse in the book of Acts that teaches this principle. Turn with me back to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. And here in this account, the Apostle Paul is in the city of Corinth. And in verse 9, the Lord comes to Paul. And the Lord says to him one night in a vision, Acts 18 verse 9, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. In other words, Paul, don't be afraid of persecution. Continue to preach and to speak the gospel. Why is that? Verse 10, here's the comfort. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. In other words, God is telling Paul, listen, my elect people are in this city. You might not know who they are, but they are here. And when you go and preach the gospel and refuse to be silent, but proclaim it boldly, my people will hear my voice. Now notice Paul's response. It wasn't apathy. It wasn't, oh, I guess the Lord will just do this. No, Paul said, it says in verse 11, he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. This this was not some one week evangelistic crusade. This was a year and six months where the Apostle Paul, motivated and fueled by the reality of God's sovereignty and who God will choose for salvation, led him to have patience to teach the people in Corinth the Word of God for a year and a half. The patience of Paul. The patience of Philip. To go to Philip even with, with or Bartholomew, even with Bartholomew or Nathaniel's doubts, to tell him, come and see the Messiah. If you want an Old Testament passage that also gives credence to the reality that God is sovereign on the one hand, and on the other hand, He uses our evangelistic zeal to call people into His kingdom, turn with me to Jeremiah chapter 29. This is a good rabbit trail to get on. Jeremiah chapter 29. Now, this is a letter to the exiles that Jeremiah the prophet writes. And he's going to tell them, you're you're going to be taken into exile, but I want to give you some level of hope, some level of encouragement. And so he says this, Jeremiah 29 verse 10, For thus says the Lord, When seventy years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, And I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. There's the sovereignty of God, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me. This is man's response to God's sovereignty. And come and pray to me, and I will hear you. Verse 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you. Why is that? Because God found them first. Declares the Lord, I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So here we learn that what God plans in His sovereignty, He also provides His people an opportunity to participate in. And this principle is found throughout all of the Scriptures. God is sovereign, and that's why we proclaim the Gospel. God is sovereign, 
That is why we pray. We know the power of God and we respond to the power of God and participate with God in His sovereign purposes. I think Philip wants to participate in God's plan by pursuing Bartholomew, taking him to Jesus, telling him, come and see. The point is not that Jesus needed Philip's help. Jesus could have went and found Nathaniel the same way he found Philip. The point is that he wanted to use Philip. And Philip is patient with Nathaniel's doubts. Now, there are many lessons that we can learn about patience toward others in their doubts. We live in a society in which there are all sorts of enemies targeting the church and planting doubts among the people of God. We are living in a time period in which we need to learn to be patient with others. Let me suggest to you just a short list of ways that we can demonstrate patience. Patience in general is a staple Christian virtue. And the first thing that we need to understand about patience is that we need to demonstrate patience without rivalry. Demonstrate patience without rivalry. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. We're turning to a number of places this morning, and that is okay, because I want you to see with your own eyes as you look at the Bible what God's Word has to say about patience. Ephesians chapter 4. We'll pick up in verse 1. Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Now he's going to describe what that means. Verse 2. Here's what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. With all humility and gentleness, here it is, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, for there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Paul is saying, learn to demonstrate patience without rivalry. Now, there are things in our belief system as Christians that we ought to be willing to die for. In fact, there is a long list this morning, too long for me to mention, of things we must be willing to die for. But there are other things that Christians can disagree on and not spit at each other. There are things that we can disagree on and love one another and be at peace with one another about. And I think we are entering a time in Christian history in which we need to find what those things are. And we need to learn to demonstrate patience without rivalry. Here's another one. We need to learn to demonstrate patience without resentment. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Here is another passage that speaks about patience. We refer to this as the love passage, and indeed it is. But here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, we see that one of the ways we love each other is by being patient toward one another. Paul says in verse 3, If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. What is love? The first definition of love is this. Verse 4, love is what? Patient. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or what? Resentful. Love is patient and is not resentful. Here we see Philip being patient with Nathaniel in the midst of his doubts. There will be times... Christian, in your life, in which the reason that there is another fellow Christian who does not see things the way you see it has more to do with you than it does with them. The Lord wants to cultivate patience within your heart. Will you love other Christians, even when they're not at the same place you are? Will you love them and be patient without resentment? 
We need to demonstrate patience without rivalry. We need to demonstrate patience without resentment. Here's the third one. We need to learn to demonstrate patience without revenge. Turn back with me to Romans chapter 12. You're familiar with this passage. These are all familiar passages. Romans chapter 12. This is another passage on love. We'll pick up in verse 9. And let me just remind you, in verses 1 and 2, Paul says that we are to be living sacrifices in verses 1 and 2, which means we aren't, to, we aren't to hold on to one part of our life and not give it to God. We're to give our whole lives to God, which will evidence itself in love. Verse 9, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor, do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, seek to show hospitality, bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse them, rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those that weep, live with harmony with one another, do not be haughty but associate with the lowly, never be wise in your own sight, repay no one evil for evil but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible so far as it depends on you live peaceably with all, beloved never avenge yourselves but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written vengeance is mine I will repay says the Lord, to the contrary if your enemy is hungry feed him, if he's thirsty give him something to drink for by so doing you will heap burning coals on his head, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. We are to be patient even with those who are our enemies. We are to be patient with those who seek to harm us. We are to be patient with those that seek to destroy us, recognizing the fact that Jesus promised we would be hated. Jesus promised that we would be persecuted. And sometimes the Lord will deliver us from those things, but oftentimes He won't because He wants to cultivate within our hearts the virtue of patience and long-suffering. Psalm 37 says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way, over the one who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger. Forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In other words, don't take matters into your own hands. Leave it to the wrath of God. We should demonstrate patience without rivalry, patience without resentment, patience without revenge. Let me give you another one. Patience without reservation. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul is clear, writing to young Timothy about a couple of things. One thing that Paul wanted to be clear to Timothy about was the fact that he needed to be bold. He says in 2 Timothy 2, verse 24, The Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. There's a sense in which the Lord's servant, specifically referring to a pastor, a minister, but broadly speaking to any servant of the Lord, any Christian, you are to be patient with those you are teaching, patient with those you're witnessing to, patient with those you're trying to bring along and disciple even being willing to endure evil, as Paul tells Timothy. On the other hand, Paul would say this, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching, for the time will come when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Paul tells Timothy on the one hand, you need to be patient and endure that suffering. But on the other hand, you speak the truth without reservation. You're patient with other people, but your patience is never compromised. This is what marks a believer who has cultivated the virtue of patience. A believer learns to demonstrate patience without rivalry, patience without resentment, patience without revenge, and patience without reservation. When we see brothers and sisters struggling with their faith, we're to minister to them, not berate them. When we see unbelievers in the world, we are not to hate them, we are to pity them. And we are to do all that we can to bring them 
to a knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and His salvation. Let me give you just a handful of ways in which you can demonstrate patience in your evangelism. I've given you a list of how you can demonstrate patience in general, but let me give you three key elements on how you can demonstrate patience in evangelism. First of all, patience in evangelism involves an attitude that reflects the character of God. You say, what is the character of God? Well, one of the most famous verses we could go to to point to the character of God you're familiar with, Exodus 34 and verse 6. It says that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is slow to anger. When provoked or challenged by sinful man, God flares his nostrils and yet restrains his anger such as the patience of the Lord God of Israel. This is part of His character. God will surely judge the wicked, but amazingly, He is patient with them. Yes, there is coming a day in which He will visit iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children. There comes a time in which God unleashes His judgment and His vengeance is poured out. But the emphasis of Exodus 34 is not His judgment. The emphasis of Exodus 34 is His kindness and His mercy and His grace and His long-suffering. He is slow to anger. In fact, God is described in the New Testament as having kindness that leads others to repentance. Romans 2.4 Now here's the question. If God is so kind in His long-suffering in such a manner that it leads or persuades others to repentance, then why do we think, when we are rough with unbelievers, that that's going to lead them to repentance? We recognize, on the one hand, that God is sovereign over who will be saved. But it does matter how we treat unbelievers and how we present the gospel to them. They are people created in the image of God. One of the most grievous things to God is for a self-proclaimed Christian in his pomp and his arrogance to berate other unbelievers and not show them the love of God that God Himself shows unbelievers when He is slow to anger. Patience in evangelism involves an attitude that reflects the character of God being slow to anger. Secondly, patience in evangelism involves a rest in the sovereignty of God. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 3 just for a moment. 2 Peter chapter 3. On the one hand, we are to do all that we can to bring others to Christ in our demeanor, in our attitude, in our love. On the other hand, we are to rest in God's sovereignty. 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So here we have Peter telling the elect Christians that he is writing to that God is patient toward His elect people, not wishing that any of His elect should perish. In other words, God is faithful to bring His true elect people in so we can rest in the sovereignty of God when we share Christ with others. God will not lose one of them. Jesus was clear about that in John chapter 6. He's not going to lose one of them. No one can snatch them out of the Father's hand. He will raise them all up on the last day. His slowness is based on His grace. His patience toward sinners is based upon His grace. We need to rest in God's sovereignty. Having patience in our evangelism involves an attitude that reflects the character of God and rests in the sovereignty of God. Third and finally, it responds with the hope of God. You're in 2 Peter 3, but turn back to 1 Peter chapter 3. Here is the proper demeanor of a Christian. 1 Peter 3.15, you live with hope in God. You respond with hope in God. How do you respond in these troubled times, Christian? Here it is. Verse 15, in your hearts, learn to honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do this, watch this, with gentleness and respect. 
We could say with patience. We could say with a tenderness. We could say with a deep-seated love. We are to always be ready to tell the unbelieving world why it is we have this hope of Christ. Well, I think we learn just from this little account in the Gospel of John and seeing how Philip handles Nathaniel, his patience and his grace, we see that we are to be patient with others in their doubts. But there's a second principle that I want to leave with you this morning. We're talking about what it means to be patient. We're looking at the lives of Philip and Bartholomew, or Philip and Nathaniel as he is called. And we learn here that not only are we to be patient with others in their doubts, but we also need to learn to be patient with God in our doubts. Let's talk about Bartholomew in a little bit more detail, or Nathaniel, as John calls him. Turn back with me to John chapter, chapter 1, and I, I told you we were going to look at a little bit more detail at his statement of doubt, because it, it is a statement of doubt, and we need to face it head on. Verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And notice Nathanael's response. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That is a doubt. What are we to make of this doubt? Well, in the first place, we are to see that this doubt is not rank unbelief. John is clear that both of these men were diligent students of Scripture, as verse 45 says. They studied the law and the prophets. They were looking and longing for the long-awaited Messiah based upon the first mention of the gospel in Genesis 3, verse 15. Their deliverer, the one who would crush the head of the serpent. I don't think that Nathaniel or Bartholomew doubted God's word in any sense. The question wasn't who the Messiah was, but where the Messiah came from. The doubts were in the where category, not the who category. And notice how Philip doesn't come to him and say, look, I found a man who can fix all your emotional troubles. Or I found a man who can deliver you from all your earth's trials. Or, or I found the one who can give you your best life now. That would be easy to say, oh, let me go to him and find him. No, this is a sincere honesty regarding his doubts. I've searched the scriptures and I understand who Jesus is, but it's just hard for me to reconcile the fact that he could come from Nazareth. He understands that his friend is trying to help. So first, we need to recognize this is not rank unbelief. This is honest doubt that will be honored by God. Second, we're to see here that this doubt, although sincere, was not well-grounded. This is an argument, an argument that Jesus couldn't possibly be the Messiah because he was from Nazareth. This is an emotional argument, not a theological argument. In this moment, he is not thinking biblically. He's thinking superficially. And I just want to stop right there and say we live in an emotionally driven culture. One of the reasons for that is feminism. Feminism and the elevation of women beyond the way Scripture elevates them and honors them has led to a weak society with weak men and arguments that are led and fueled by emotionalism instead of theology. And in our culture... Our trouble in doubting God will always be the result of emotionalism. Instead of being emotional, you need to be theological. Go back to the Scriptures. A great apologetic passage for Philip, if he would have thought of it, would have been Isaiah chapter 9 and verse 1, which says this, In the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. The prophet Isaiah was clear that the Messiah would come from the province of Galilee. Here Nathaniel's being a little bit nitpicky. 
Okay, well, he, maybe he comes from Galilee, but Nazareth? Could anything good come from Nazareth? That is, by the way, a question uh, rooted in contempt and derision. In fact, it was likely rooted in town rivalries. Remember, I told you Bartholomew, or Nathaniel, was from Cana. That was another city in Galilee. And it was actually a city that was considered to be inferior to Nazareth. He's sort of pumped up with pride here. And instead of Scripture's clear identity markers of the Messiah and simply trusting his friend, he's thinking about Nazareth, this one-horse town, this blue-collar town, unrefined, uneducated, a reputation for being rough around the edges, the riffraff of society. He sincerely doubted that anything good could ever come from Nazareth. And I just want to say he was sincerely wrong. At least he was honest, but his doubt was not well-grounded. And I would challenge you that most of the time when you meet other Christians who are doubting something in the Word of God, it's not because there isn't an answer. It's because their doubts are not well-grounded. They're coming at it from an angle that is not resting in the authority of of Scripture. And you can never allow an unbeliever or a believer to settle in their doubt. You must turn them to the Scriptures. Refusing to believe Scripture's clear teaching on certain issues will blind one from seeing the reality as God reveals it, and it will lead to more doubt. And all disbelief is rooted in pride. That is exactly what is happening here with Nathaniel. Now, just on a side note, I want to give to you some things that Scripture clearly teaches that many so-called evangelicals doubt and therefore deny. I just wrote down a few things, and I'm going to read these. Clear things that Scripture teaches that Christians today deny. Number one, that God sovereignly elects who is saved from before the foundation of the world. That wives must submit to their husbands. That women can't be preachers or elders, according to the Bible. That critical race theory is anti-God. That charismatic teachings are satanic. That the church growth movement is not found in the New Testament. That worship on the Lord's Day is not an option no matter what the government says. That homosexuality is a clear sin that there is a difference between male and female, that God did create the world in six literal days, that all of Scripture is inspired by God, that there is a literal hell, that apart from Christ, nobody can be saved, that persecution for a faithful Christian is unavoidable, that materialism will send you to hell, that Islam is fueled by the forces of hell, that Jesus only died for the elect, that free will never saved anybody, that the public school system is anti-God, that children are a gift from the Lord, that abortion is the worst sin of our generation, that men, not women, are discriminated against in our culture, that feminism is rooted in Satanism, that easy believism puts one on the path to hell, not the path to heaven, that worldly music has become idolatry in the church, that worldly pastors are wolves in sheep's clothing, and that faith without works is dead, just to name a few. Nathaniel's doubt was not rank unbelief, but it was doubt that was not well grounded. And the third thing that we see is that his doubt was curbed by a willing patience to be teachable. We picked on him a little bit this morning, but he did, after all, follow Philip and go see Jesus. He's patient with God. That's how true believers are. The question is not, do you have perfect faith? The question is, do you have faith at all? The question is not, do you not have doubts about certain things? The question is, will you have patience with God and persevere through whatever those doubts might be? Perhaps his thinking went simply like this. I know it's hard to imagine that the Messiah, the King, would come from Nazareth... It seems more likely that he would come from Jerusalem, the capital city, or maybe Bethany or Jericho or some city close to Jerusalem. But I've been studying the Scriptures. And maybe if I'm patient with the Lord and I cut loose my pride and my prejudice and go see Him, I can be convinced. So he does. 
And notice what happens in verse 47. He was rewarded for his patience with God. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. I love that verse because that's as if Jesus is saying, Finally, I have someone who's not a fake like the religious leaders. Here's a man who has doubts. He's being real with his doubts. He has no deceit. He's being honest. I can deal and handle with a person like that. He says, an Israelite indeed. That word indeed is a lathos. It could literally be translated here as a true Israelite. What Jesus meant by this, I think, is that here is someone who is not just an outward physical descendant of Abraham, but an inward spiritual descendant, one who has the faith of Abraham, truly looking and longing for the Messiah. Not much different than what Paul said in Romans 2, verses 28 and 29. That the true sons of Abraham are those who have faith. He says to him, in whom there is no deceit. Jesus is saying that this man is sincere. His, his search for truth was genuine. He was teachable. He was relying on Scripture. He was having patience. He needed simply reassurance by Jesus to overcome his prejudice of feelings. So he goes straight to the Word of God incarnate for his answers. Not the world, not the culture, not society, but to Jesus Nathaniel says to him in verse 48, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you. When you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, there's some debate as to exactly why Jesus mentions this fig tree and what Nathaniel was doing. Well, fig trees were smaller trees. They had a short trunk and they had long branches that reached out 25 to 30 feet in length. In other words, it was a wonderful place to sit in the heat of the desert to cool off. There was no air conditioning. And I believe that what Nathaniel was doing under that fig tree was praying and meditating, searching the Scriptures. And in effect, Jesus is saying, when you thought nobody was seeing you pray and study the Scriptures, looking for the Messiah, I was watching you. Your sincere study of the Scriptures has paid off. You are honest, teachable, and patient, and I will grant you the ability to believe. By the way, anyone who believes will be granted that ability by God. For it is by grace that we have been saved through faith, and that not of ourselves, it is a gift of God. What is the it? I believe the it in that context is faith. God grants faith, and that's what He does here. He grants the faith to believe and Jesus is the Messiah. Verse 49, Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. He's quoting from the Old Testament. Different passages. Zephaniah chapter 3, Zephaniah verse 9, Micah chapter 5. You're the Son of God. You're the King of Israel. In short, you are the Messiah. I don't care where you come from. You are the Messiah. His pursuit of truth. And patience with God led to true belief. Notice verse 50. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. What do we learn from all of this? Well, we need to learn to be patient with others in their doubts. Because if it wasn't for Jesus, we would receive no patience from God in our doubts. The God of patience provides persevering patience to His elect, allowing them to overcome their doubts. God is long-suffering and patient. Someone has once well said, men do not reject the truth because it contradicts itself, but because it contradicts them. Their ideologies, their opinions, their thoughts. God's patience and the moments of our doubts leads to perseverance, which is rooted in God's preservation of us. And Bartholomew, Nathaniel, he was patient until the end. One tradition says that he ministered in Persia, in India, and he took the gospel to Armenia. Another tradition says that he was tied up in a sack and cast into a sea to be drowned. He believed until the end because of the patience of God. He start, started following Jesus 
with doubts, but he ended with steadfast dedication to God. What about Philip? Well, Philip was a man who doubted as well. And I won't belabor the account we looked at it last week, but in the feeding of the 5,000, Philip doubted the miraculous power of God. And yet, God overcame his doubt. Tradition tells us that Philip was faithful until the end. God used him, full of his doubts, to be a bold defender of truth. One tradition says that Philip was stripped naked and hung upside down by his feet as they pierced him with sharp stakes in his ankles and his thighs, causing him to bleed to death. Before he died, he asked not to have a shroud of linen placed on him because he felt unworthy to be buried in the same manner that his Lord was. Here was a man who struggled with his doubts. God in his patience blessed him with a life that eventually led to bold preaching of the gospel. You know, Jesus was clear that we would be prone to wonder, prone to doubt. Jesus was clear that we would struggle at times with anxiety and doubts and all of those things. He said this on the Sermon on the Mount, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will He not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, but your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. True believers have anxious moments. True believers have doubts. True believers from time to time lack the faith that they need to have. But in the end, true believers are patient with their doubts because they know that God has been patient with them. God is patient with His true sheep. Patience with God is nothing short of faith in God. These apostles of patience are a demonstration to us of our need to be patient with others in their doubts, but also to be patient with God in the midst of our doubts. Our only hope is God. Our only hope is for Him to be patient with us in His long-suffering character. He has done that through the Lord Jesus Christ. He has in a display of everlasting love and long-suffering mercy poured out His wrath upon His only Son to bring us rich salvation. May we never doubt His goodness. May we never doubt His Word. May we never be doubtful because of the things of this world. We have a patient, long-suffering, merciful God who has richly blessed us with a salvation we do not deserve. And even in those moments of doubt, He will nurture us and cultivate in us the character qualities that He wants us to have so that we can be more like Christ. May we trust Him and cast our doubts into the sea. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for the Scriptures which give us hope and Encourage us to be patient in long-suffering, even in those times in which we don't understand your strange providence, even in those moments in which it's difficult to be patient with others, maybe patient with the unbelieving world that wants to persecute us and destroy us, patient with other believers that are difficult to get along with or we don't see eye to eye on different issues with. Father, help us to be like the apostles, bold, without reservation, proclaiming the truth, not compromising our convictions, but also having that tenacity and that patience
patience to love others, to be tender, to be winsome. Lord, to engage the culture in an effective way that will point them to Christ and trust in your sovereignty as we patiently are in this for the long haul, knowing you are slow to anger. And Father, you are in control of those who come to know Christ And you have chosen in your sovereignty to use us as instruments that will be patient with this world around us. Help us to do that. Help us to do that for your glory and for your honor. And Lord, I also pray for those present, Lord, who may try to take advantage of your patience. Help them to know, Lord, that you are patient. You are slow to anger, but Lord, you will destroy the wicked. You will judge those who refuse to embrace your truth and embrace your gospel. And I pray that if there are any today who are rejecting you, that you would soften their hearts. Help them to see Christ in all of his glory. Help them in faith to reach out. Give them faith. They can't believe apart from your sovereignty. Grant them the gift of faith. Save their souls, we pray. In the blessed and strong name of Jesus Christ, we ask you.